It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, they are referencing the chocolate when they say melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this week is... Kevin. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Kevin and KJ work together. Kevin is one of the three Kevins credited for dropping the dress code in the office. Kevin conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today we are continuing a series where we each picked a movie that was nominated for Best Picture. We're going back to the year 2000. Gas costs $1.26, and a pound of bacon costs $2.97. Bill Gates has left his position as CEO of Microsoft, and Australia is hosting the Olympics. During all this, Ang Lee releases a little movie called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Ang Lee, also known for the Eric Banner Hulk movie, Brokeback Mountain, and Life of Pi. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon went up against Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and Chocolate, but... Chocolat! Chocolat! But Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon lost to Gladiator for Best Picture. Are you not entertained? <laughs> I'm Maximus. In Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, we follow some elites in an older Chinese society who are all masters of their crafts, specifically Kung Fu. Master Li Bai is attempting to sheathe his sword for good by giving it to Sir She. Yu Shu Lin, Master Bai's would-be lover, is tasked with delivering the sword to Sir Chi. The sword is promptly stolen, which causes accusations and glorious fight scenes as Yu Shu Lin tries to save face for all parties involved, and what we get is a story about masters of their craft trying to find their place in the world, and what to do now that there's nothing left to master. Tom, if you only had one word to describe Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, what would it be? Fading. Nick, what's your word? Integrity. Kevin? Tragic. And my word would be flowing. It's time for question one. How does Yu Shulin confirm that Zhen Yu is the one who stole the sword? Locked in. Locked in. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I'm locked in on that, sure. All right, Nick, what do you have? She casually drops the teacup and the reflexes on the thief are astounding. Tom, what do you have? I had the same thing. She drops a teacup uh, the morning after, and uh, and uh, Jen catches it. Kevin? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, watches for her reaction when she's like, uh, oh, I'm sure whoever stole it, if they just brought it back, everything would be cool. Great. All right. Points to everybody. Yeah, it was definitely during that scene where they're all kind of having tea. Um, and specifically that 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 teacup, it was it was really fun to watch. Right. Because as soon as mm -hmm. you see you, Shilin drop it, you're like, oh, she's doing this on purpose. And then uh, Jen catches it. But yeah, that whole scene, she's eyeing up um, Jen Yu and, you know, again, confirms that that's 
There's no doubt in Yushulin's mind anymore. Yeah, she is. Um, this is a Michelle Michelle Kwan's character, um, and she's probably the most Michelle famous. Yeoh, right? Michelle Yeoh, right? Michelle Kwan's a figure skater. Sorry, <laughs> 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 yeah, Michelle Yeoh's character. Excuse me. Uh, she next to uh, Cha Young Fat's probably the most famous person up to this point, and then um, the actress who plays Jen um, Ziyi. Zhang kind of passed her, at least in, in China. But she, I, I like the, the feminist aspect of the movie I like a lot because it isn't, um, it isn't seen as, um, as a sort of kind of girl power thing. It's much more, um, it's much more balanced and much more subtle the her role in the world and her being um Yushilin is is respected it's martial uh even though she isn't able to train at the uh uh Wutang temple she is still Wudan Wudan it's the yeah Wudan Wutang they're the same they're the same yeah, there's an awesome clan up on that mountain <laughs> yeah yeah but they're yeah in the, in the literature, they're the same, yeah they're the same thing. but um you know, she's not able to train there, but she still has a lot, uh, you know, uh, she still has a martial responsibility. And what's interesting is her um, her understanding of independence and freedom is tempered by her age to include the, the necessity of responsibility, which Jen, for her, all her talent, uh, doesn't understand at all. And so we could see this kind of this feminist perspective actually breaking along along age and along responsibility. What I would say is when I was watching this movie, I was actually more drawn to the female characters, both of them. I thought they were really strong. And I know Chow Yun-Fat's character is supposed to be the master. Yes, he had his moments, but I really thought both of their stories shine through brighter in this film. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Chow Yun Fat, I think, had top billing in this movie, but I don't I don't think his character was at all the most important character. I, I think I think he was almost ancillary. Um, he, you know, like sure, he's he's the guy that like has the sword and all that and everything, but uh, like his plot points are pretty straightforward. Like he has a sword, he loves a woman, he wants to give up one life and pursue another. Like the end. That's that's his story. Um, but like um, Shirlen and Jen, her, their stories are both uh, much more complex, much more intricate. The other thing I really liked about Yu Shulen's character is, you know, she's trying to get the sword back sure, but she's also trying to save face for all parties involved because that harmony of society is almost, it's more important than the right person has the sword. It's how does the sword get back? How do the people that are now, you know, being accused of things, how can they still gracefully come back into society? And I really enjoyed watching her navigate that as well as the fight scenes and everything else she was doing. Yeah, that's a good point. She is, yeah, she is the person who's trying to keep these social bonds together. And she kind of recognizes the, um, the problem of, an aristocrat and Jen is an aristocrat or she is the daughter of an, no, she is an aristocrat. Being the daughter of a governor makes you an aristocrat. That, uh, that kind of, that kind of thievery really throws 
maybe not all of their society up in the air, but it does cause a lot of problems that are not typical of, you know, uh, of a normal criminal act. Let's say one committed by Jade Fox, where you, you know, either get Jade Fox or you don't, right? Here, if she's committing this criminal act, there is suddenly a, um, a kind of a, a spiral of social relations that come undone or have to be altered as, as a consequence. Uh, and this also uh, speaks to the, the sort of two competing social circles that are going on in this world, which is the social and the aristocratic and the hierarchies that, are, that aristocracy implies. And also the, um, the, the sort of, um, oh, what do you call it? The, the Zhang Hu world, the martial world that is, uh, they, they mention that a few times that he wants to, uh, Chao Young Fat's character wants to give up the Zhang Hu, uh, you know, which is this sort of, it's kind of like the Knights of the Round Table, except they don't have a king. They just, you know, they're sort of um, martial warriors who go from place to place, sort of itinerantly correcting things and whatnot. Um, and that's the community he's a part of. And, and Michelle Yeoh's character is kind of also a mediator between those worlds, right? She's not fully part of the martial world anymore. She stepped into the civic world, but she still has to negotiate that, especially because of the weirdness of the circumstance where you have an aristocrat, the person at the top of the civic world moving into the, the martial arts world, right? Just kind of fully going for it. And this is a, a social violation that probably doesn't have precedent. AJ, I believe, said the word harmony before, which I think is very apropos to this situation. She is keeping the harmony within the hierarchy. She knows her role. She knows how she works within the world, and she's trying to maintain that balance. Going back to Jen's character, we mentioned that she was part of the uh, arist aristocracy. I like the scene where she's undercover in that, I don't know, bar or whatever it's called and she's pretending to be uh, a man and be one of the normal commoners and she sits down and orders a bunch of food and she has all these very particular ways of ordering it and the guy's like that's great but I have to take the order from these other tables so she didn't quite she was blending in as she thought with society but still it came out in the way she handled things that really that wasn't her world. And she's also able to dominate that world. I mean, it's it's a really interesting uh, confluation because I think you're right, Nick. I think it's it's clear she's an outsider, and that's right away. She goes in, she gets the tea, she asks her a cup, and you know these people come over and they immediately know this person is a hoity-toity. What they don't know is she is also um, she not only has the the trappings of the civic virtues, and by virtues I just I don't mean goodness, but just the practices of of being in the civic world. She also has maybe not the virtues, but the talent of the martial world. Yeah, they also, um, they had a, the, the two guys come over and, and they basically challenge her and she doesn't realize she's being challenged. And, and uh, they say, uh, you don't seem to understand. And she's like, yeah, I don't, big deal, so what? And it's, it's kind of like this, like, yes, I don't fit in and I don't care because I'm better than fitting in. It's time for question two. Who distracts Yushu Lin in her first fight with Gen Yu that allows Gen Yu to escape? Locked in. Locked in. 
Give me one moment. Oh, um, locked in. All right, Kevin, what do you have? It's low. Nick? I thought it was the Jade Fox. Tom? I don't remember his name, but it's the police inspector who launches a dart at the, uh, who launches a dart at, at you know, the, the, the inspector, and then she gets away. I love how we all have completely different answers here. So KJ can't just say, everyone gets <laughs> the points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Points for everyone. What is it? Uh, well, I think those are all compelling answers. I guess <laughs> I had assumed it was Jade Fox, but do we know? I think it's Jade Fox. She does the dart thing. She does the darts. Oh, is it Jade Fox who shoots the dart? Well, yeah. I thought it was Jade uh, Fox. Yeah. All the all the previous times I watched it, I thought it was Jade Fox, and I actually went, "Oh crap, that's low!" And I went back and watched it again a couple times, and was like, "That's definitely low." So oh, I feel pretty it? confident it is. But uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I I thought see the point if if there's a. I thought it was the police inspector trying to, the the guy with the daughter, right, whose wife had been killed. I thought he was for some reason trying to hit the hit um jen not realizing what he was doing yeah but he he's after the jade fox not yeah yeah but th that that still caused jen to get away i, I... what was it KJ? If, if she thought jade, fox, jade fox or low <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have the movie open let me go to the movie let's see the videotape i'm in the fight scene but it's tough to tell because the fight scene's like eight minutes long it's yeah like, it goes on, on. Well, go to the end <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> I'm I'm there. It's just taking a second to load. At, at 2042, I have a freeze frame. Looks like low to me, but you know I'm not not ready to mic drop or anything. I think he might be right because when I first saw the movie, it's at a point where we don't know either one of those characters, so I had nothing right. to relate to. I'm almost there. It does look like it does look like low from here. Um. I will concede. I think that it might have been. It's definitely low. not Jade Fox. Okay. okay. No, I'm going to say it's low. All right. It might low. be low, but I can't that, really. That tell. hat looks pretty distinctive to me. And I'm yeah, looking at the freeze frame. Um, yeah, it's, it, it looks lowish. I'll say that. Uh, I'll, con I'll concede. I will concede because I think that may second. be true. All right. Points go to Kevin with low. Um, I thought it was Jade Fox. So I wanted to talk about how different Jade Fox was from Yushu Lane, right? She seemed like the opposite character. She was not interested in harmony. She was only interested Sorry. in um, promoting herself and, you know, uh, obtaining what others had. I was going to say, she's also very different than Lo as well. So it fits either way. <laughs> so Jade Fox is the dark side user of this world. So she took what she could from that manual that she stole, but twisted and corrupted it to her vision and, and really focused on her pain and her anger towards not being accepted into the training of the Wudan. And I really think that's how I looked at it. She was the dark side to the light, which is the other users. It's Xiao Young Fat's character, for example. So there's... Um... I read a, an interview with, with Ang Lee where he talks about uh, how he used green to symbolize femininity throughout the movie. So, um, so like, you know, green destiny is, is kind of like the, the, 
the destiny or fate of, of uh, women in general, I think. Uh, Jade Fox, you know, Jade is a green gemstone. So I think he's kind of symbolizing the uh, sort of like jealous, vengeful side of, of femininity in a way that uh, contrasts obviously with, with Shulen because she's sort of the, uh, you know, peaceful, peacemaking um, side of it. And yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I saw the duality. Even in this world, she has what is considered more of a, and I hate to say it, manly type occupation. That seems very rare for a woman to be in security. And they even said Wudan would not allow women to train there, although it seems like they might be making a, an exception at the end of this film. But it, it seems like uh, like Yushu is, uh, you know, accepted in her role. Uh, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any challenge there. With, with Jade Fox, um, you know, Jade Fox is, like you were saying, Kevin, like it, it comes out of, um, you know, animosity that she was rejected or Nick, you said, somebody said that, that she, she was uh, yeah. rejected from the, the, the temple and couldn't, you know, couldn't part, couldn't participate fully in it. And she's also jealous of her student who has, who has passed her. Um, but it's in the end, there is this really kind of, uh, you know, almost kind of queer element to their relationship because there really is this like spurned lover aspect when you know um when she sees that that jen has passed her and might be accepted into the temple um you know that you you and i were going to be forever uh, be together forever you know the, just the two of us you're my only family she she tells she tells jen at, at the end of the picture and you know she wants to to kill jen because jen has has moved past her um and, and the scene really does read like a spurned lover scene at the end of the, the picture. Um, and so I think there is that element also involved. To me, it felt more like a uh, betrayed parent um, than a spurned lover, but I see where you're coming from for sure. I think I lean more in Kevin's direction, but I do see both sides there. One of the things I wanted to mention too, Tom, you said when she was explaining how she felt rejected by not being allowed to train it was actually a pretty like forward line she's like yeah they'd sleep with me but they wouldn't train me i was like whoa i just didn't expect that kind of dialogue from her i don't know it was pretty forceful i thought it was really interesting so like you know if you if you think like i was saying of her as sort of the the jealous vengeful side of of uh, the duality like i thought it was kind of cool how like the whole time you think like, oh, like she's just this villain or whatever. And then at the end, you're like, uh, actually, she's got a pretty good reason to be pretty angry about this. And I just thought it was, it kind of humanized her and, and kind of was like, uh, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's a good reason why, uh, you know, this side of the, the duality exists. Maybe it's not just invented as a, as this villainous force. Maybe it's, born of something legitimate. Another element too is she has killed Southern Crane, who's Master Lee's master. You know, he he's the the person who trains Master Lee. And um, then it seems at the end that, well, Master Lee doesn't become Jen's trainer because he dies, but that, um, you know, he Jen is going to be slotted under Master Lee. And so there's this kind of, um, this kind of, 
we might think of as like outside the system rebellious sisterhood that has been kind of taking out these masters or attempting to and now the the sisterhood is sort of being integrated in into that and it, it's clear that jen needs to be integrated right she's this kind of um without that integration she is she's very unstable she does not act in the way that the movie treats as as virtuous right she's not part of any world um you know once she she's not part of any world in a in the sense that she's engaging in the responsibility of one of these worlds in any way and she needs to be brought into into the temple community into that kind of uh um uh, uh community in order for the, for this to work um but you can see how much uh this hurts uh jade fox because she really as as the kind of the person who's actually killing that sort of um trying or trying to wipe out that inheritance system that knowledge that moves from master to pupil master to pupil to kill them and steal that knowledge uh you know that that kind of renegade way of, of stealing knowledge that sort of prometheus archetype type thing um that's also something that has to kind of fade out and move away and you know there has to be an incorporation of something new women working within this system into the system um but at the same time that knocks out the kind of the renegade element along those lines we were discussing how ang lee really was playing with uh, uh traditional gender roles and uh responsibilities if you will and one of the things i thought was interesting is her in his portrayal of jade fox is the way she finally kills her victims. She uses not combat, but poison. And in a lot of Western and European influence um, type, I don't know, stories and shows, poison is always considered a lesser way, okay? It's not necessarily uh, the noble way of vanquishing your enemies. So even the way she does it, it's almost like a bit of trickery versus actually winning in rightful combat. And I think that really says a lot about her character in this story. I think that fits with the theme of uh, femininity femininity as well, right? Like uh, I, th I think uh, poison is, is something that's commonly portrayed as the way a woman would kill somebody. Um, and I, I think that kind of fits in with uh, the, the focus on, on female themes and, and things of that nature in this film. Exactly. Kevin said exactly what I wanted to say, but just better. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's not the way that uh, that how was saying your name, Lean, Lean. Yeah, it's not the way Lean would kill somebody, and I mean, we would say it's not the way Jen would kill somebody. Uh, though Jen is, Jen is, I think, as distant from actual killing as anybody in the movie, right? As like like her father, the governor, is right. Jen is is completely naive to actual death and pain. Um, but it's not, yeah, it's not something that that uh, Lee, Lean would ever do either. She would not poison somebody. She kind of engages in this, this noble, noble thing. And I think that's that's part of the sort of, uh, you know, the the idea of this female character being kind of pushed outside the virtues, because virtue isn't just, you know, acting nobly. It's it's a practice it's a way of responding and being incorporated into a tradition um, and 
if you can't be a part of the temple and train in the temple, you know, all the noble, all the noble action you engage with is still not going to provide you with virtue, right? Because you're not part of that tradition. All right. At the end of round one, Kevin has two points. Tom and Nick have a point apiece. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. As a man who lives alone in the woodland areas of eastern Connecticut, I sometimes wish there was a little bit more noise. That's why I am a loyal customer and happy promoter of our new sponsor, Noisy Neighbor. Noisy Neighbor is a sound machine that rests right outside your house and imitates the yell of a noisy neighbor, a sound most city residents instantly recognize. Noisy Neighbor provides you with the feel and comfort of an urban community without having to move. Here, have a listen. Isn't that lovely? Pick up your Noisy Neighbor today. And we're back. Kevin, we're at that critical part of the show where we ask the guests a key question. If you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I, I think it'd have to be Bruce Lee. Um, and I think that he would be a great person to sort of pick the brain of as, as you watch it because you know, th this movie was, was a huge hit in the West and uh, not so much so in the East from what I understand. And, uh, you know, Bruce Lee is kind of the guy who brought Kung Fu to the West. And uh, I think a lot of the criticism in the East of this movie has to do with, oh, you, you weren't true to, uh, you know, the cinematic norms of a Kung Fu movie. Um, and I'd like to get Bruce Lee's take on, it, do you need to be? Is it, is it okay to make a movie more accessible to the West? You know, it's interesting you should say that about a traditional kung fu movie. Maybe I just haven't seen enough, but I actually didn't think this was a traditional kung fu movie. There was actually more story. The fights that were great and all, but the parts I really enjoyed, aside from the amazing beating of the drum soundtrack during the fights, which was awesome, was really the story that was being portrayed there, uh, especially in the middle part of the movie where we learned a little bit about uh, Jen's experience with Low in the desert. Uh, so maybe they were expecting a traditional Kung Fu movie and that's not what this was. Whereas the West maybe didn't have as much familiarity with a traditional movie and thought that's what this was portraying. What's odd about this is it kind of is a traditional version of what it is. I mean, this is this is a novel from uh, the late 1930s, early 1940s, a, a novel series. And it has a lot of the conventions of that type of novel. The, the type of novel is wuxia, which is like a martial arts novel. And they're, they're sort of pulpy from my understanding. And they really became popular in the 50s. And a lot of the kind of genre conventions of that novel are really here. 
I mean, the, the flying in it is actually, there's actually a name for it. It's a, a qinggong is the type of flying. And that's in all of these novels, right? They all do that. They all have um, different, uh, different weapons they associate with different people. So like naming a weapon like Green Destiny is, is pretty common. Um, the whole thing with chi where you like put it into your hands and hit somebody and they go flying backwards, that's that's there. So it's it's interesting that the East saw this not as a conventional, the East broadly speaking, I guess maybe Chinese audiences didn't see this as a traditional Kung Fu movie because the the source material from what's, what it's drawing from is actually, it, it actually seems to be um, paying respect to a lot of the traditions of that source material, a lot of the conventions. What I also found interesting was that it felt like a much older movie. And I don't mean that by the cinematic quality that was up to date to 2000, but I, you could have told me that that was a movie made in the seventies or so. And I would have believed it. I just, it, and I mean it in a good way. It, it felt authentic and real and, and older than it was. Kevin, did, did people give it bad reviews in, did Chinese reviewers give it negative reviews or, or were audiences just not interested? Uh, I, th I think it was, I think it was a, a mix of both. I, I think they weren't interested because, um, like, I, I think I think Nick pointed out that the story in this in this movie, the story really drives the kung fu. And I believe in most traditional kung fu movies, it's the other way around. That um, you know, the the story is just a vehicle for the fighting more so. Mm -hmm. um, I know in particular. Uh, Chinese audiences were kind of miffed that it took 15, 20 minutes to get into the first fight scene. Oh, okay. That's funny because I thought it came pretty early. You know, like I felt like, oh, we're already, you know, fist her up. <laughs> no, right? no. Like, in, in a traditional movie, in the first five <laughs> seconds, someone's getting uh, karate chopped to the face. <laughs> yeah. So, Kevin, I'd be nervous if Bruce Lee didn't like it. I'd be nervous being in the room with him for two hours with a movie he didn't like. I, I don't know him, you know, but like, uh, okay, you're okay, Bruce. Like, you're like, hang on. I, I would assume that he would be cool with, you know, changing the tradition a little bit to make it more accessible to, to Western audiences. That, that would be my assumption. But yeah, it's quite possible that he'd be like, yeah, this is terrible. Uh, it's not at all like the movies I did and it's way worse. And I'll show you <laughs> the movies I did. Stand up. Like that that's the part I'd be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's time for question 3. There is a scene where Li Mu Bai has retrieved the sword from Gen Yu. Yu Shu Lin finds him in the courtyard with the sword and says he can return it to Sir She. But Li Mu Bai says he has one last mission. What is he referring to? Locked in. Locked in. Okay, I'll, I'll say I'm locked in on that. Okay, there's a corny answer, which I'm not going to say, and that might be the right answer. But I think he knows Jade Fox is around, and he has to avenge his master's death. So he's going after Jade Fox. Yeah, same thing. Uh, Got to avenge Southern Crane, I think. I think he says, like, uh, I guess I will avenge... I guess I will avenge my master's death after all, or something like that. I had the same thing. Avenge Southern Crane. I'm feeling really good about this one, guys. <laughs> KJ's yeah. just going to say, no, you're all wrong. Man. No what points for anybody. He, really? His la he needs the sword to train Gen Yu. 
Oh. He is so enamored and taken by her, her skill and ability. He's saying he can't sheathe his sword. He doesn't need the sword for bloodshed. Mm-hmm. He needs it to train the next man. Is this real or oh. is this KJ headcanon? <laughs> it could be KJ headcanon. I'm pretty that's, sure that's, yeah. Kevin gave the exact quote of when he's like, I got other heads to you know crush here. <laughs> so so I wanted to make sure that I had the scene you were describing right, because there are two scenes that sound kind of like what you're describing. And the first one, he says, I got to avenge Southern Crane. And then later in the movie, he says what, what you described, that like, hey, I got I to gotta train my disciple here. Is, is what's your name in the courtyard at the time? Because there's, I, I, there's an earlier scene where um, Chao Yun-Fat's character is just like using the sword and she... Uh, Yushi Lin walks in and kind of looks at him. <laughs> it's during the day. Is it that? that that's what the scene I thought we were talking about. No, at night. This is at night. Oh, geez. The both. I think we all thought of the wrong scene. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, no points for anybody. In this scene, he's talking about then wanting to train Gen Yu after he's seen how skillful and you know, amazing she is at the Kung Fu. So Limu Bai now has a new purpose in life is to train one last pupil. And I want to talk about how this movie to me feels like a master's tale. There's no training montages. There's no training. Everybody is already at an incredible level of, of Kung Fu, right? You have Master Li Bai, who is the master, right? He does a lot of his things one-handed, you know, Darth Vader style. That's a, a way to show his mastery. Um, we've already talked a lot about Yushi Lin's mastery. And even Gen Yu, even though she has more to learn, she's probably the third best fighter in the world behind the other two. I know Star Wars didn't invent the master and apprentice relationship. I know it takes influences from this type of genre. But just because I'm a Star Wars fan, did anyone else see a lot of parallels between... I know I said in one of the other questions, light and dark side, training someone, master and apprentice, uh, all in, in innate skill without any training. This this just seems like those who have the force. We don't have to go down this path, but I actually thought about that a lot when I was watching this film. Yeah, I, I would say the difference I had between this sort of Star Wars schematic and this is that that this system seems to be on the brink of going away. And I don't think it's like next week, the, the temples are dissolving and, and the, the, the dynasty is, is um, going to become a republic. But, you know, but I, I have the sense that the, the, the sort of master-apprentice system, not, not any particular relationship, but the system itself is on wobbly legs. Um, and that this world that we're in is also, um, while stable now, isn't long for this world, um, you know. And and so I and also the the kind of the light side, dark side, um, the, the kind of Manichaean frame, also seems to be somewhat. Um, uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It's it's being questioned or being turned over in this. There's a lot more kind of subtlety and, and Jen's character really is that, uh, you know, she doesn't seem to be dancing between the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. What she seems to be doing is trying to um, 
trying to find freedom in spite of the fact that she has this designated social role that more or less doesn't allow it. It's a privileged position, but it doesn't give her it doesn't give her freedom. I mean, for me, the the corollary wasn't so much Star Wars. I kept thinking of King Arthur, you know, the King Arthur's tale. And Jen sees the the legends of the past of the um of the the what do you call it? the the Gangu martial world that those things are so present in her that they're the inspiration for her to take up her, her you know take up the sword take up the training and so happens she's brilliant at it um but she's really a person looking and inventing a romantic past in order to participate in it and therefore you know and and you know like like a lot of people who are young who invent a past that they can participate in it can you know lead them astray when they find out actually that world doesn't doesn't exist and it really never did exist this is sort of something in my head and so i think that that sort of light side dark side dynamic is something that she has that she learns the world is more complicated than that or that was just never there yeah and my whole thing too was it wasn't star wars in general it was specifically the force yeah one of the differences though i think is like in in star wars like the light side and the dark side are like um they're like almost even right like they're both they're both really good and you know either one could win in this one it's it's really clear like uh you know jade fox is absolutely no match for anybody else in the in the movie so like uh, there there's almost like yeah there's this tension between light and dark side but like it's never the outcome is never really in question yeah the the, the thing that's in question is what's going to happen to jen right jen jen has um jen has kind of ruined her social position and sure. so what is she yeah so what is she going to do uh you know it's it's yeah it, that that's kind of that's kind of the issue here and but she's see... not she's not like going to the dark side though like she's... yeah i don't think so yeah. at all no i think she is i think she's actually it's more like as if luke was um as if luke was in secret trying to become a jedi without telling anybody and discovering that the jedi actually aren't all they're cracked up to be um and that in a lot of ways he doesn't really belong as opposed to luke be you know, going to the dark side or in danger of going to the dark side. I think she was almost redeemed at the end, though, or at least put on the right path. Yeah, that's why she jumps, right? It's the wish is that, you know, it ends It ends in a moment of magical realism. If you know magical realism, it's, um, it's actually this movie uses that genre. It's kind of a Latin, it came from Latin America and uh, Tony Morrison uses it a lot where it's like, everything's realistic, but there's a ghost, you know, <laughs> everything's realistic, but there's like a magic book or something. And that seems to be going on here. There's something realistic, but people can, can float. And in the end, the movie just moves fully into that magical realism when she jumps off because her wish at the end is, you know, a wish to return to the desert, a wish to actually, you know, go into a past that isn't invented in her mind, but a past she actually experienced that is somewhat actually extremely romantic. Is is that her wish? It's certainly Lowe's wish. Do you think it's her wish too? I that that was the implication I got, right? Because it was he's like the, the legend is you close your eyes and you jump off the mountain and then the wish is, is fulfilled. And so he he gives it maybe it's not her wish. 
Maybe her wish is, is something else. I took it as they cannot be together. That's why she gave back the comb for him to keep it safe because she was going down a different path. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they do end up together at the, the end. No, I don't think so. Do you think so? At least for a little while. No, but I, I, I think that end scene is her say, giving that comb back because he's supposed to keep it in safekeeping until they can be together. She realizes now she has another, this is how I took it, that she has a path. And that's why she jumped off to realize her full potential. And it wasn't actually their time yet. That's how I took it. Where, where's everyone else yeah, standing here? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's ambiguous. I think it's fair. I think it is ambiguous. Yeah, I, I have like a, almost like a superstructure comment. Um, so like the, the, whole, the whole movie, she's sort of trying to control or have dominion over green destiny, right? She's trying, mm -hmm. to, to, she's trying to have control over what she wants to do with her life. And I, I took it as um, at the end, she, and in her, in her youth, she thinks that she can do that, right? Mm -hmm. I, think, uh, I think Michelle Yeoh's character realizes like, hey, no one's gonna control their destiny. And that's, I, I think why she, throughout the movie, never really handles green destiny. She kind of is like, hey, what's gonna happen is what's gonna happen. I'm not gonna try to control destiny here. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the way I took the end was that um, Jen was letting go of that desire to control destiny. I like that read. It's time for question four. There is a scene where Yu Shulin implies that she knows it was Jen Yu that took the sword. What does Yu Shulin say to Jen Yu? I think I'm locked in. Not as confident, but locked in. I, I'm drawing a blank here, honestly. Um, okay, sure. I'll try something. <laughs> locked in. The only thing I can think of is that she says something about the police officer was killed during the encounter, and Jen was upset about that. So I like she said, oh, no, there was a police officer, and he was undercover. I believe there may have been some mention of that in that situation. I think it's the same scene, but I think um, Shailen says, I know that good people sometimes make mistakes. It's the scene where after Jen has beat up a bunch of people when she's disguised as a man, she comes to Yushulin's house and to, to borrow clothes. Yushulin says, no, you can keep them. And, um, and Jen insults her and, and Yushulin says like, how dare you, I've always known you've taken the sword. And it was I and, and uh, Chao Young Fat's character, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Chao Young Fat's character who um, have been trying to protect you, to, you know, keep, the, keep things together, keep society together. I don't think I have the quote exactly, but she goes, she says, I've known from the beginning it was you who took the sword. Points for nobody. Those are oh. all pretty good answers, but there's a scene fairly early on in the movie where uh, Jen Yu is doing calligraphy. And she says, oh, I can write your name. And says, oh, funny, when you write it like that, it looks like a sword. So I love- Wait, how does that confirm anything? What I love about this movie is the way <laughs> Yu Shulin uses her words to let people know things without directly saying what it is. So in this instance, she brought up it looked like a sword may not have looked anything like a sword 
but it was Yushu Lin's way of letting Jen Yu know that Yushu Lin knows she took the sword. And if anybody else was standing around, they wouldn't have picked up on it. So if there was any spies, I love the way not only did the fight scenes seem to float and, and fly and, and just flow, also the plot and the political intrigue and, and really the way Yushu Lin acts as a character throughout the movie just floated through and let information pass between characters and scenes, but kind of subtly and in a, um, in a way that was not very direct. Doesn't Jen say your name looks like a sword? Because she, she writes uh, Shulen's name. No, I, I think it was uh, Yu Shulin. I, I remember that because I remember after she did the fine calligraphy, she said something to the fact that um, calligraphy or writing is very similar to combat or something to the degree. And she said, Fencing. Yes, yeah, fencing. Yeah. And she said, oh, I didn't know my name looked like a sword. Oh, okay. So that did happen. Not only did it let Jen know, it let KJ know so he could ask us the question. <laughs> but this oh, goes, was Jen this, going to that flow that KJ is talking about, that's why I thought the female characters, the leads, were the strongest parts of the cast. And they really pulled me through this whole movie. I, I, I really enjoyed both their performances, especially their banter back and forth, because we knew it. Okay, just by the eyes. I mean, you could say even when they're saying, "Hey, there's a man stealing the sword." We know that's that's not a man, and it's it, or at least I portrayed that it was the same character we met before the governor's daughter. But that that play, that friendly banter that they have throughout the film, is intriguing. Yeah, she's um she's very good in in both worlds. You know, the, you know, in the martial world and the civic world that I keep dividing up, but she's also um, she's also very much a realist. She's you know, kind of uh, she when Jen comes to her and says like, "Oh, you know, you know, Master Lee, you must have gone on these adventures and it must have been wonderful." I can't. I've read stories about you, and she she's kind of like, "Yeah, yeah." There's they don't really write it right. It's there's a lot of uh, flea ridden beds you have to sleep on. But even um, that, right? They're not talking about that. Jen Yu is is complimenting Yushi Lin on on her mastery of of the mm -hmm. martial art, and Yushi Lin is saying back, "You don't understand it at all, even though you're incredible at it. There there is a lot more you have to learn." And well, that's, she's, that's also, she, talk. she's also she doesn't know yet. I was gonna say she's also humble, but she's also seeing the. It's like reading the tales of the knights, but not realizing there's very little combat or they're glorified. So that's why uh, Yushi Lin is being also humble and being a realist into what that life is really like. I think there's a mix there. You know, I don't think it's all. Yeah, and it's it's also mastery for Yushi Lin. It's, um, to, to go with what you're saying, mastery is also, um, uh, a, a sort of way of being in the world. It's not, it's competence, right? Um, but it's it's also a way of being in the world. And what's interesting comparing her to to Chow Young-Fat's character, to, to Master Lee, uh, he, his, he's even kind of beyond this. And he really wants to, you know, the, the, the kind of mastery that he has is, um, it's not something he wants anymore, right? 
it, it's actually led him into a great deal of unhappiness. He, he doesn't want the kind of the martial virtues anymore. He's willing to embrace them to train this dragon that's that's out of control. Um, but in terms of um, in terms of thinking about this movie as as a collection of masters, I think there is a I, you know, I, I think the there is a, a firm question about where the martial virtues and the martial behaviors still still function. And I think with with Chow Young Fat's character, what's really compelling about him is that there is this sense that comes from him that this stuff is um, is far more costly than it is beneficial. Where you see the mastery specifically with Master Lee versus Jen is when they're fighting in the bamboo forest, up literally up in the trees, and she's trying to kick it to get him unbalanced, and he's just drifting with the bamboo. He's graceful. He uses one arm, and she's struggling to kind of keep her balance and stay. I think that really portrayed the difference in skill. Even though we saw it, hidden or mass because they were dealing with inferior competition in other elements. That's where you see the true difference between a master and someone who's skilled, but still has a lot to learn. And he, he even said, uh, yeah, you know how to use this sword to fight, but I'm going to teach you to hold it in stillness. Right. And that's, I think that's sort of the, the demonstration of that is like, yeah, you know how to move. You don't know how to be still. Yeah, we we also get a difference there. I like I like that bamboo scene because it comes right after the fight scene with uh, Yushi Lin. Uh, we see how Yushi Lin fights, and then how uh, Chao Young Fat's uh, master Master Lu fights, and it's like brutal and hard. And there's a variety of weapons that go into it, and the ground is being smashed. And then we move to Master Master Lin, and it's it's floating, it's lightness, it it's grace. He can take the sword in one move, not three. Right, and and that's that's an interesting aspect of mastery too. Is the the variety within it, um, and I, I think watching those two scenes back back to back back together, back back to forth, back and forth, back, back to back, back to back. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> watching those scenes back to back, you you see um, you see strength and grace, right, and how they can be how they can be divided um or how you can notice those as different aspects but also how um how they need to be together in one thing that's what mastery is strength and grace so at the end of round two kevin has two points nick and tom have one congrats kevin on the big victory here for crouching tiger hidden dragon all right good job man you got us you got us (laughs) thank you it was lou it was lou (laughs) It's time for Movie Rand. This is a movie I just never got around to watching because all you heard was, oh yeah, it's the one where they fly around, okay? Funny enough, watching this film, the thing I liked least about it was the flying around. I liked everything else uh, and I didn't dislike it to the sense that it turned me off, but it's amazing how that dissuaded me from just spending the time to watch this film. I really enjoyed the story, specifically the the love story between Jen and Lo in the desert. What are some of your thoughts regarding what you thought the perception was of the film and what it turned out to be in reality? Yeah, and I too didn't watch it till fairly recently. I had chalked it up as a 
I don't know why I've never seen a dumb Kung Fu movie, but I just thought it was going to be some, you know, a bunch of fighting that was kind of boring. Um, but after watching it, it's, it's kind of why I picked this one for this show was because I thought there was a lot more than just the fighting and the fighting was something that I didn't expect. I, I did enjoy the flying, the floating, the, the chi that Tom talked about earlier, the, you know, the, the, the superhero fights that we get in Marvel movies today, but again, it, it flowed better. It, it, um, we used the word drifted. We used a lot of words like flow to describe these fights. And I don't think I would use them for the Marvel fights, but here I think it really worked. So it, it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about like the fight sequences and stuff. Um, so the choreographer for this was um, Yuan Woping, who also did um, The Matrix and Kill Bill. So like, I think if I had known that like, oh, the guy that did all the fight scenes for The Matrix Oh, he also did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I think I would have been like, cool, I want to watch that right now. I, I actually like the fight scenes in this more than The Matrix. I think they, they're, you know, I, I think part of it too is that, um, oh, oh, the the main actress, um, oh, Zi Yijong, who plays, who plays Zhen, uh, is, is a dancer. She was a, a graduate of uh, Beijing Dance Academy. And so apparently there's a lot more of dancing in it than actual fighting in, in her her movements and whatnot, or that the, the movements are geared towards somebody with that kind of training. Um, and I, I like how that was that was integrated really well into the the flying. Though I will say the uh, to Nick's point, when there's a lot of like bamboo dancing in that one scene, yeah, yes, the, the like, yes, there's, yes, there's a yes, lot of, yes, yes, yeah. You you could like I I think um, Ang Lee as a director sort of falls off after this. I know he gets a lot of praise for, for movies like uh, Brokeback Mountain, but I I find his later movies kind of hard to get through. And um, you could see this sort of seeds of someone who's a really good filmmaker and who's really talented go into self-indulgent mode. And I think, I, well, I don't think that happens in this film or not very much anyway, it like blows up in his later work. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, my my kind of idea of fading is I, I think I, I don't I don't know this. So this is a hypothesis that I wanted to run by to see if this actually makes sense. My idea of this is that this is um, this is a movie about a kind of world ending that it's fading and that it's not immediately apparent, but that it's it's kind of on the periphery. And a lot of this is taken from kind of research about the the conditions under which uh, this this was written and, and made. Um, the the author of this is, um, I think, Wu Hu Zhang Long, who wrote these books in between the late 30s and early 40s. And it takes place, it, it starts in 1778 is the first book. And then what we get here is the like 1820s Crouching Tiger. And, um, and that was made, that's the 1820s are is the um, is the the Xing Dynasty. And it's like the end of the high point of the Xing Dynasty. The author of the book was born just before the Jing Dynasty ended, and it became the, the Republic of China. And then, shortly after these books were published, it becomes the People Repu People's Republic of China. Uh, and you know, the the plot of this movie and this book is taking place just as the high point, the glory ages of this dynasty is ending. The same dynasty that this guy, as a young boy, saw literally end, come to a complete end, and the dynastic system that went back thousands of years in China coming to an end. Um, and I think that what, you know, that what we see with these, these people um, 
is is mastery of a system that is just now beginning to fade, just a little bit beginning to fade. It's, it's still there. It's still working. There's still masters. There's still a temple that they could go to to train. But we're seeing right now the old master going, I don't know about this. He's, he's still my trained gen, but he's saying, I don't know about this. And I think that when you when you look at the kind of the historical circumstances surrounding both the both the setting and it's unusual to have a very specific time for for one of these movies to be set usually it's like the historic past not a year this is set in a specific year it's 33 years after 1778 <laughs> you know, I, I looked it up um but i think that the specificity is geared towards that and that's kind of my hypothesis that this is the point in which things start to fade. So Tom, I, I haven't done the research and I, I'm, I was not aware that this movie took place in a specific year in the whole nine yards. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I'm sure you're right, but I don't know in the context of this movie if we could infer that. Yeah. But mm -hmm. going back to kind of what we were talking about with the masters, aren't all masters story about the end of something, right? And unless they have a new apprentice, the master's story will almost always feel like the end of something because to master something is to complete it is to finish it is to, to end it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but a master apprentice story is about ending and continuation, right? It's about, but this doesn't have an, apprentice. that's exactly it. Right. That's my point. Master stories are right. Master apprentice, master apprentice. It's the end of it's, it's the master's completed, you know, the, the work, um, or he's he's successfully living the work, you know, however you want to phrase it. But it's also going to pass on. And we see that the tradition is greater than the individuals through the master-apprentice system. There's no apprentice here at the end. Right. That's why I'm saying it's a master's tale, not a master's apprentice tale. Maybe, maybe I'm just using the wrong word. Yeah, but here. if there's no apprentice, how does how do we keep going? You know what I mean? We don't. Yeah, right. exactly. And I think we agree there. I just, I'm coming at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. I'm saying in the context of the movie, we also get that mm -hmm. regardless if it takes place on a specific year towards the mm -hmm. height or the decline of a, of a. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Assuming Tom's hypothesis, I do think there's evidence within the movie, not so much on the Wudan side. I think there might be some similarities that they're trying to portray there, but even with society in itself, specifically you Lin's role in this film, trying to keep the balance between the different elements of the hierarchy. We see as an audience that things are not stable. And she says, if we go after the governor, then that may just be the last thing to unravel everything. So there is some context to show that society is in a very fragile state and possibly the system is on the brink of collapse. So I do see using the lens that Tom is uh, portraying for us, there is evidence in the film to show that. Do we actually think there is a master in this movie? Um, I kind of don't think so. I mean, you, we see Limo Bai as the guy who, yeah, he's the most adept at martial arts, yes. Um, but is being good at martial arts his goal? I don't think so. And I think if you look at it in sort of the the Buddhist tradition, I, I think he's he's very far away from from the you know the the goal of enlightenment. He seems very far away from that, and in fact, he's so far away from it that he's basically saying, 
forget this. I don't, I don't even want this. What I want instead is on this earth and, and right in front of me. So I'm, I'm ditching this whole thing. I'm, I'm not even going to strive to be a master anymore because I don't want it. I want this other thing, right? This other person, this other life. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Kevin. Congrats. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. On another note, check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Who do you feel was the true master in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listener episodes. Thanks again for joining us today. Where can people find you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I guess I need to get a get a Twitter. I think that's that's <laughs> on the list. But when I get one, I'll uh, I'll share it with you. That's fair. I think we only did for this show, but uh, <laughs> it's all good. And people can find me at Thomas Slayman fifteen, and you can find me on Twitter at KJ one thousand one thousand. I can also be found on Twitter at the nicknamed. Join us next time as we conclude our series on Best Picture nominees with Tom's recommendation from 1938. You can't take it with you. Should be a fun one. Talk to you then. Ding, 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 ding.